This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Pod. Today we are talking about Season 5, Episode 14, Ozymandias. It's here, the anti-penultimate, to borrow a word from the Ringer, episode of the show. And one that Zach mentioned last time is almost universally regarded as the best of the entire series. But this is just crazy all, all over the place. There's so much to talk about. And I do want to say just before we we start, we're into December now. So if you're thinking about what what can I get for my my family and friends for for Christmas, well, I'm gonna offer something here for you guys. Wrap up Breaking Pod the podcast in a little bow. It's totally go. free. Give it to your family and friends. We'll be wrapped up by that time. I think it'll be 64, 65 episodes. A lovely little gift. Hours and hours of Zach and I podcasting. Just endless to, hours to of footage. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, Zach, I think that there's just so much here that we should just jump right into the two minute summary. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit, uh, a couple episodes ago, how about how we might rename it to 30 second summary. This is another one that, that it's, might go it's getting a long. whole minute. It's getting long. Yeah. Did, did you, there's just real quick, about. did you like the word anti-penultimate that I put into the show notes there? That was from it's the, good. yeah, it was from the ringer's description. And I was like, I've never, I mean, I've heard penultimate and I'm familiar with the prefix anti, A-N-T-E. Yeah what anti-penultimate so as in the third to last episode that seems completely unnecessary <laughs> yeah qualifier. exactly but anyway yeah let's do the summary all right so the two minute summary from wikipedia here we go jack and his team remain unscathed while agent gomez lies dead and hank has been shot in the thigh walt begs jack not to kill hank offering jack 80 million dollars in cash in exchange for hank's life Nonetheless, Jack executes Hank and his men dig up all seven barrels, leaving one for Walt. At Todd's suggestion, they take Jesse as a hostage in order to get information from him about how much he told the DEA. As Jesse is taken away, Walt tells him that he watched Jane die. Marie tells Skylar that Hank has Walt in custody, and Skylar agrees to tell the truth to Walt Jr. When they return home, they find Walt packing and insisting the family leave immediately. Skyler suspiciously asks Walt where Hank is, but he doesn't answer. She immediately knows that Hank is dead, but instead of calling the police on him, she attacks him with a knife. Skyler and Walt fight over the weapon, with Walt Jr. defending his mother and eventually calling the police on his father. Walt escapes with Holly. After taking full responsibility for the meth business during a call to Skyler that is monitored by the police, he leaves Holly at a fire station and assumes a new identity through Saul's contact. After being beaten and tortured for information, Jesse is forced to help Todd is forced by Todd to help him cook meth when he sees a picture of Andrea in Brock and Brock in the lab. Dang, I was so close to finishing that without slipping up. And the last sentence really got me. But that's the end of the two minute summary. It was pretty close to two minutes, I think. It was. So, it was Zach. pretty long. I was impressed with your uh, your addiction throughout. Um I got so nervous. It was so long. I was like, oh, I know, right? I'm going like, to mess up. And oh, then, I'm going to mess up. And then I was like, I'm unscathed, unlike Jesse. And then, no, not at quite. The end, I, I tripped up. I just tripped like up. just like Hank thought he was home clear. <laughs> exactly. Um, slightly so, different stakes. Slightly different. One question for you. Did Walter yes. White write this summary? Because <laughs> yeah, maybe so. there's one part here where I saw, um, where is this, Skylar? Uh, oh, she, she, yeah, she immediately knows that Hank is dead. But instead of calling the police on him, she attacks him with a knife. That is not 
That is not an accurate description of what right. happened in that scene. He also, Walt escapes with Holly. More like Walt kidnaps Holly. Yeah. He's very generous to Walt. Walter White totally wrote this summary, dude. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, yeah. So, so what, what grade do you give this uh, one? C minus. I mean, yeah. it, it, there's, there's a lot packed in here. I think they actually did, did a good job like trying to summarize the very varied events of Ozymandias. So I'll go C. Yeah, I'll give it a B minus. It's pretty good. It covers all the major plot points. And there is just so much happening in this episode. There's no there's just no way. I mean, some summaries might be able to do the episode justice. There's just no way when you're talking about the best episode of the series, you're just sort of trying to get the major plot points. So I can't fault it for not getting into the nuance. Another another sign that it's written by Walter White. He leaves Holly at a fire station rather than cruelly abandoning Holly (laughs) at a fire station. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Zach, let's move on to any trivia here. And you you pulled a couple of things. So I'll let you first. We're going to talk about this poem that the episode title is based on. And I know you have a clip of Brian Cranston himself reading the poem. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So this pretty is, dramatic stuff there. Yeah, yeah. So this this poem is pretty thematically in line with sort of the character of Walter White. So it's pretty amazing that they they found this poem. And I and I read that it was, you know, you Zach, you had sent me an an oral history to read. And it sounds like the writer of the episode was the one who sort of had this poem in mind. And this was the best place to sort of integrate the themes of the poem and what's happening in the series. Yeah. And I just, I love, um, first of all, I love, you know, references to like high art and literature whenever they appear in film. Vince Gilligan certainly knows his stuff. And this is not the first time that something like this has appeared. But yeah, this is the Percy Bysshe Shelley poem, Ozymandias, about a king. And you heard it there, right? There's this traveler from an antique land who tells a story about this giant statue that is cut down in the desert. Only the two big legs remain. But the inscription, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And then the very next line, the one that Brian Cranston paused before delivering, nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Um, and so I, I love, I mean, it's, it's basically the tale of the downfall of an empire and the emperor who ruled that empire. Uh, and of course, that calls to mind what Walt told Jesse several episodes ago when he was not in the meth business, he was in the empire business. His empire has fallen. And that's what Ozymandias, this episode is all about. Yeah, I, I think it's very it's very appropriate for this episode and, and sort of the story of, of Breaking Bad. As we mentioned, you know, many people rank this as, you know, the best episode of the show, including The Ringer. We've been talking about 
their list for a long time. Ozymandias is definitely clearly number one, and also Thrillist voted this one number one as well. And by the way, we haven't referenced the Thrillist episode, uh, the Thrillist list before, uh, but I just found it when I was doing some research for this episode, Josh, and it was pretty hilarious because the Ringer published their list, I think, in September 2018, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And Thrillist did theirs like two weeks later. So it's totally <laughs> ripped off the idea from the ringer. I was like, is it similar uh, other than a uh, number one? It's a different list, but it is, right. I mean, it's similar in that it's a, you know, comprehensive list of all breaking bad. Sure. Episodes. So it's like yeah, yeah. the Thrillist guys are sitting around the, you know, editor's room table and like, all right, who's got some ideas? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's like, exactly. well, the ringer did a comprehensive <laughs> list of all breaking bad episodes. We should do that. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Ooh, good, good. Let's do that. Um, another piece of trivia here, Vince Gilligan reportedly said that Ozymandias is the best episode we ever have had or ever will have. Obviously, ever will have. There are only two after this. Although I will say, having rewatched episode 15, Granite State, that's a pretty good episode. Granite State is pretty it's good. Not, it's not as good as this one. And, uh, you know, for for reasons that will become clear when we talk about all the, the depth in this episode. But the next episode is really good, too. And it's one that I think I told you, Zach, was sneaky good because I didn't remember yeah. it being like a really good episode, but it, it certainly was. But anyway, um, this episode specifically won three Emmys, best writing, best actor, Cranston, Brian Cranston won his fourth Emmy and best supporting actress. Anna Gunn won her second Emmy. Um, this is an interesting thing. Um, Vince Gilligan opted to show the credits about a third of the way into the episode. If you'll remember most of the time after we get sort of the intro music, you start seeing the credits at the bottom of the screen. I actually noticed this when I rewatched this. But in this episode, you see most of the things play out with Jack and his crew and Hank and Walt in the desert before any credit starts roll. Because I was thinking to myself, I want to remember the person who wrote this episode. So I was like, did I miss the credits? And then, of course, they end up rolling uh, a lot later. This episode was directed by Ryan Johnson. He's directed a couple other episodes of... Oh, oh, he directed one other episode of Breaking Bad, and it was uh, Fly, the most probably the most controversial episode of the show, the one that took place almost entirely in the underground Gus Fring lab, where I gave an MVP vote to a fly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you'll remember that. Um, he's now probably best known for uh, the film Knives Out, the upcoming Knives Out 2, The Last Jedi. Um and yeah, this is, I, I think you wrote down here that you found out that Guillermo del Toro, who directed uh, Pacific Rim, Hellboy, Blade 2, Crimson Peak, wanted to direct this episode. I think that in the oral history, they mentioned that Ryan Johnson was sort of like a last minute pick for this. Yeah, I saw that as well. Due to like some scheduling issues. Um, so I found that kind of interesting too. But then I, I heard that once he got it, he was really defensive of it or protective of it and was just like, you know, when Guillermo del Toro was like, oh, I want to direct that. He's like, well, nope, it's mine. <laughs> Back <laughs> yeah. off. And then uh, you had this thing in here about about Holly, and I, I thought you could you could speak to that. Yeah. So uh, after um, after Walt does indeed abduct Holly and takes her to uh, well realizes that she has a stinky diaper, and so he's got to take her to some gas station, you know, bathroom or whatever to change it. Um, she starts saying "Mama, Mama," and she's like looking at him and kind of looking around. And obviously, her mom's not there, and. I thought it was like way too on the nose and it seemed fake to me. But, but according to Ryan Johnson, that was an unscripted moment and it was totally real. And the baby was actually saying mama. So, you know, if you take, uh, if you take Ryan Johnson at his word, uh, don't listen to me for my nitpicks because that was a real moment that I misread. So there you go. Yeah, this was, this was, uh, something else they covered in the oral history that the baby's mother, actual mother was standing just off camera and sort of the baby looked over 
at her mom and just started saying mama mama and they, they said like we hope brian cranston doesn't break character because this is such a great moment we need it to be in the episode yeah it, it i mean it worked uh again i thought totally it was too on the nose but now that i know it was unscripted it was not too on the nose that was about right yeah so. and i and i do love like i don't think we're going to talk about that scene in the the gas station too much but i think that's some of the most powerful acting in the episode because you you really get to see brian cranston as you know like a father figure and you know when he's changing holly on the gas station changing board it's it's very much like what you would expect of a father with their child and then he's sort of like making it out to be normal and then he says something to the effect of the first order of business is to get you a new car seat and then that sort of snaps you out of it a little bit because you're like oh wait you just drove this child away from his mother without a car seat in a really dangerous situation. But then he also has this really human moment where he's holding her and she's saying mama. And like for anybody who has a child and doesn't feel wanted, not in the same way that this character is experiencing it, but it's difficult for a parent when, when the child wants the other parent. And so you can sort of, you can really feel that from his acting. So I, I, I just wanted to make a point of that as well. Zach, any bloopers in this episode that you picked out? Uh, yeah, there's a few things. Um, one, when uh, Walt gets into the Yukon, his glasses fall off, and then later they're back on. So he cannot open the door of the car <laughs> to get out with his hands be- tied, behind, tied behind his back, but he can put his glasses back on magically. Um, when we have the flashback in the very beginning of this episode where Walt and Jesse are out there cooking, uh, you know, in, in what turns out to be the same spot where Hank dies. Uh, Walt makes that phone call to Skyler. She has the shorter hairstyle that she has in later seasons, but not in the first season. So that's uh, there's a little anachronism there. Um, and then this one's kind of funny. The coordinates that uh, Walt gave Jack's crew, they were definitely good enough to get Jack's crew out there to the spot where, um, where they ended up in the shoot-off with Hank. But... Uh, at that, at that, you know, uh, approximate latitude north, which I think is thirty-five or thirty-six degrees north, one second um, of difference in latitude and longitude uh, equates to I think about seventy feet. Uh, and so, when they walk to the exact coordinates to bury or to dig for the money, there's no way they would be that accurate. They they would be able to narrow down a big range you know, a big, uh, a big box, a very, you know, approximately 70 feet by 70 feet where it might be. Uh, but they would not know exactly where to dig. So it was very unrealistic or maybe just, they got super, super lucky when they just started digging right away. Yeah. This was one of my, this was, it was going to be one of my nitpicks, but like Jack says to one of his cronies, like, uh, you know, pull out your phone. Yeah. And I'm like looking at him, pull out what appears to be like a, a Blackberry <laughs> yeah. or, you know, some like not, we're not talking about like an iPhone 12. We're talking well, he, about, he says like that, he says like that fancy phone you got or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or like one of those, like a uh, chocolates that used to slide oh, up. Dude, and, like, I had one of those. Put, it was amazing. Inputting yeah. the, uh, the coordinates. So Loved it. I totally agree with that. It, it did feel a little bit like, okay, unless you had a GPS like tracker, something, something other than a 2013 phone, or I guess in the timeline of the show, 2009, 2010, something like that. Cause we've only, you know, it's only been like a year and a half since the, the yeah. events of the show have taken place. Right. So anyway, I just thought that was a little funny too. One little thing, not a blooper, uh, more of a little trivia fact. Uh, it didn't quite rise to earning me a best moment nomination, but fire station scene when the firemen are there before they find Holly, they're playing chess 
um, the person who's playing with the white pieces moves his king because his king is in danger. And so um, when you do that in chess, I mean, our listeners probably know the basics of chess, right? But when you move your king, things have gotten bad. Uh, and normally it's a maneuver to to buy time. Uh, you take a temporary setback to position your king for a, a better position on the next round, get him out of the immediate danger that he's in and hope to recover with your other pieces later. Uh, and it's just interesting too, what color is it? It's white. So Walter White, the king, is is making what he what he sees as kind of his only option left to hopefully position himself for a better comeback later. That's very tricky. And that's exactly what those IMDb trivia boards were born for. Exactly. For I, moments like this. That might have been IMDb. That also might have been fandom. It was one of the okay. two, but it was not it was not an original thought of mine. Uh yeah. Yeah. But I, I thought it was really interesting. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. This is something they talk about in the in the oral history, but one of the other little Easter eggs is when Walt is is pushing his money through the desert, he passes the pair of pants yeah, that he lost right. in, in the first episode, which I didn't catch when I rewatched it, but I when I, I went back and I saw it. So that's kind of a cool little Easter egg, little little thing they put in there. But he just didn't like, recognize them, did he? Or no, did, he didn't. Yeah, he okay. just walks past them. Right. But it's just funny because it's it is the you know, as we find out in the the flashback that opens the show that that is like the first place where they ever went with the crystal ship to cook. That's right. Yeah. All right, Zach. Well, as we've talked about, this is, I think for both of us, it's probably what I would rate as the the best episode of the series, what I think you would rate as the best episode of the series. When I was trying to like pick best scene, best moment, best writing, it's like you could pick the whole episode pretty much because it's just that good. But you had one other broader thoughts and themes that you wanted to cover here that I'll, I'll let you introduce. You know, I did, Josh, and it was really just, I was asking, why do you think Walt takes credit for killing Hank when he's on the phone with Skyler? But I've changed my mind about this because I also watched a little bit ahead, um, as you did with Granite State. And I think we learned that later. So we can save that discussion for Granite State next week. Okay, yeah. Sounds good. Well, let's jump into to our, uh, our our scenes, moments, writing here, and then we will have the very difficult job of picking MVPs at the end of this episode. But let's start with best scene. And I, I cheated a little bit here because, um, you know, I wanted to sort of compare and contrast two different scenes. Um, the first one is the very beginning of the episode, and that's when we get the flashback. Uh, and then the second one is the, the scene where Skylar pulls the knife on him in order to defend Holly and Walt Jr. So we'll hear a little bit of, of those scenes here. Listen, I was thinking um, maybe we can have a little family time this weekend. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, just take a drive, the almost four of us. <laughs> maybe we can head up the Turquoise Trail, stop at Tinkertown, maybe grab some lunch in Madrid. Oh, my God, we haven't been there in forever. I know. So yeah. why don't we just do that and take a little break? All right, so that is the first one, and then here is the second. Get out. Skylar, I promise you, we will figure this out. Enough. Mom, what, what are you doing? Skylar, put the knife down, please. I promise you everything... Don't say one more word. Get out of here now. Skyler. Get out! So, so I love these, I love these two scenes when you look at them together, because I think that it was purposefully meant to be juxtaposed, uh, you know, with one another. 
the scene at the beginning is just a reminder that at one time, these two had a functional marriage. Now, we learned that it probably wasn't always the happiest marriage. And there were certainly things that, you know, probably were not, uh, you know, completely kosher between the two of them. But you get this moment where they're ready to head off to Tinkertown, whatever that is. Uh, it sounds like a fun place, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it does. I mean, and then like Madrid, like what is Madrid? Yeah, exactly. I, I thought it was pronounced Madrid, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I just love that that then you are, that you see this scene later in the episode that is hugely dramatic. It is unexpected in so many ways. It's incredibly well acted, even though Walt Jr. is in the scene as well. And I just, I just love how you can see the difference. Basically, knowing that in that first scene, Walt is out there in the desert. I think he really thinks he's doing it for his family. And I think that he, you know, is out there and saying like, and I feel like I, you know, to himself, I feel like I accomplished something and now we can go on this trip, you know, to celebrate. And then years, you know, a year and a half later, when all of this stuff has happened, they're back in their house and none of what he had hoped for has come to fruition. And we'll find out further, you know, the sort of his demise and sort of like his depth of despair in the next episode when he tries to communicate with his son. But I also just find this like deeply sad, you know, like it's just such a sad turn of events and everything he worked for or that he said he worked for up to this point is pretty much for naught. Yeah, I, I uh, agree with everything you said. I have nothing to add. I'll just talk about my best moment, if that's okay, because it's in this yeah. scene as well. Um, you know, it's it's actually, it's pretty harrowing when Marie has finished telling Skylar Hank's got Walt in custody, and then she drives home with Walt Jr., Flynn, to basically get ready for the police to arrive, and then they see Walt there, and it's like, where is Hank? I thought you were under arrest, et cetera. Um, and so then after he's obfuscating and telling them they have to go and everything's going to be fine, we get this bombshell from Skylar. All we have to do is go. We have to go right now. That's all we have to do. You killed him. You killed Hank. What? No, no, no. You killed No, him. no, no! I tried to save him! Uh, Uncle Hank is dead. I, no, no. Hey, Mom, it, it can't be true. It just please. can't be true. Everything, everything is going to be okay. So, yeah, again, deeply sad. I echo your sentiments there, Josh. My one quibble with this is how Walt Jr. doesn't chime in until after Skyler spells out, you killed Hank. <laughs> She's like, yeah. you killed him. Silence from <laughs> Walt Jr. You killed Hank. And then Walt Jr. is like, what? <laughs> My one quibble with the scene is that Walt Jr. is in it. I mean, I, I understand why he's in it. He really does. Like the 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 master class of acting that Brian Cranston and Anna Gunn are giving is like is almost dwarfed by like yeah, the, it's true. the amateur acting of uh you know RJ Mitty, but it's it's not his fault. He's just never going to be the kind of actor that the other two are. But I mean, just like imagine seeing me in that scene alongside <laughs> Anacon. I mean, I think you could have done a could have done a good job, better job. Maybe. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, but anyway, so I love that. I love that moment just for the sheer power of it. And then you know, a runner up for me on the moment thing would be the uh, when Walt's like, "We're a family," and he's sitting there 
um, you know, like uh, scowling at his wife and son who are cowering by the sofa as his son shields his wife from him. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it was a really, um, I think it, it emphasizes the cognitive dissonance in Walt's mind. Like you said, he's doing all this for his family. He can't possibly conceive why they'd be scared of him, why they wouldn't be okay with what he's doing, etc. cetera. Uh, and then it's that moment where it all kind of comes into focus with him almost literally. Yeah. I, I just feel like at this point he's lost almost everything he has worked for. I mean, Jack and his crew took most of his money and, and what's ironic about that is that, you know, he attempted to buy them off at the beginning. You know, I'll give you $80 million if you spare Hank's life. Well, they end up taking most of his money anyway, and he's only left with one barrel. Not that that's not a lot of money, but even still, you know, I feel like at this point he's lost everything and, you know, he's he's just uh, he can't, can't bear to lose something else. And that, it's just hard for him. That reminds me, though, going back to the he still has one barrel. Why do you think... Uncle Jack, if we'll call him that, why do you think Uncle Jack thought that Walt would be okay with that, right? When he's like, hey, listen, we're going to take six barrels. I'll leave <laughs> one for you. Are we square? <laughs> and he's like, hey, man, you got to tell me we're square. Like, why would they be Why would they be square? You're stealing uh, $66 million from me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I feel like it's square. a I feel like it's a power move at that point because in the moment, Jack is surrounded by his crew. They have automatic weapons. Like, Walt is completely powerless at that point. So... At that, I'm I'm surprised he even left him with one barrel. You know, well, I was gonna say, I mean, wouldn't the real power move be like killing him and dumping him in the yeah. hole with Hank and Gomi? I mean, his his reasoning for not is that Todd thinks highly of him, which is a little strange. I mean, I think there's part of them that thinks maybe we're gonna need his expertise at some point. Sure. Maybe, yeah. Um, you know, even though they have Jesse in custody, which um, which is a whole another whole another part of this episode that I I don't even think is appears in our best scene, best moment, best writing. But yeah, it's uh, it's a little suspect. That's it's a little weird. Like you would think he had no problem killing Hank to to sort of cover his tracks. Why not kill Walt too? Yeah. All right. Anything else on on the the house scene or or your best moment before we move on to to my best moment? No, let's roll. All right. So my best moment comes at the towards the end of the the desert scene, and it's one of the most devastating moments in in the series. Oh, wait. <laughs> I watched Jane die. I was there. And I watched her die. I watched her overdose and choked to death. I could have saved her. But I didn't. I wish I could say that this is as bad as it's going to get for Jesse, you know, over the last couple episodes, but unfortunately that's just not the case. As we'll we'll learn later in this episode and then, you know, Granite State and then Felina to to wrap out the series. I I think what what's most shocking about this confession is sort of the the like tone that that walt uses it's so even and so measured and it's not he's certainly not remorseful but he's also not like yelling it at him it's almost like the worst possible way of delivering it to someone because it's it's he's the way he's delivering it is like he is in complete power 
and it's just really uh, it's just it's uh, one of the most horrible moments it 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 may be even worse than him actually watching Jane die because of his reaction. Like when he watched her die, you could tell there was that moment in season two where he was sort of like, should I save her? Like, I I feel terrible about this. Now he's at a point where he doesn't feel like that. And I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that he's so deeply hurt by Hank's death that he just wants someone else to feel the kind of pain that he feels in the moment. And, and all he can think of is, this was caused by Jesse. It's Jesse's fault. I'm going to hurt him as much as I can. And this is what he comes up with. This is a great call out by you. Uh, I love this moment for just the power that it conveys. I did a little bit of internet research. And so um, I learned that, you know, we've talked about the inflection points, Josh, like the, the, the moments in the arc of the story where a character has a major developmental shift. And we identify Jane's death as one of those. Vince Gilligan has done the same thing. I learned uh, he didn't he didn't I don't think he used the word inflection point, but his point was like that was the point of no return for a wall where right? it was Jane's death. I also learned that when they staged Jane's death, originally they had uh, they had Jane. Um, they had Jane on her side, right, because as she told Jesse, you fall asleep on your sides so that if you vomit, you don't aspirate. Right. They had her on her side, and then when she started vomiting, they had Brian Cranston push her onto her back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which would be akin to murder. Uh, and, and so they thought that was like a little bit too much too soon. So they said, let's soften it. Let's have her kind of flop into her back by the force of her own vomit. And I think we actually commented on that, right? How it looked a little yeah. bit unrealistic when she kind of flops back, right, but, right. but that's why. So it basically was not staged that way originally. And so they kind of improvised that to make it not quite as powerful. So right. I think you're right. Like this is worse because he clearly has no remorse whatsoever there. He's clearly bothered by it and afflicted by the choice and it affects him here. He's not, but I, I love you pointed out the delivery here. The thing I like about this acting is that you actually don't know which way the delivery is going after the first words are said. When he says, I watched Jane die. Like he says it in a way where you can almost think maybe he's like coming clean and apologizing now that his empire is crumbling. He's like, I have to get this off my chest. But then the next three words, the inflection with which he delivers that he goes, I was there. You know, it's, yeah. it, that's the real it's power. It's so creepy. It's yeah. so creepy. And that's him like dropping the other shoe. And that's when it's just, that's when it's a real sucker punch to Jesse, I yeah. think. Yeah. So that was my best moment. And uh, I have to give an honorable mention to when Hank is killed. And I know, Zach, you pulled this audio too. It's just, it's such a, it's hard to say best moment because these are not like joyful moments in the show, but certainly powerful. And so we'll hear that, that clip here. You're the smartest guy I ever met. You're too stupid to see. He made up his mind ten minutes ago. Do what you're gonna do. Yeah, so that, I mean, obviously that, that moment is powerful in that we're losing a major character in a really dramatic way. But, I, you know, this oral history that The Ringer uh, published where they interviewed a bunch of people who were involved in that scene, what I really liked was how they talked about what he says here. And, you know, oftentimes Walt is the smartest person in a scene or in the episode or even in an entire season. But in this moment, Hank is the one who sees the writing on the wall. And it's not Walt. Walt has Walt really believes that he can save Hank with his money or with pleading or whatever. But 
Hank knows he's been around this long enough to know that this is the end for him. And I, I just really like that they gave him that moment to sort of close out his arc because, uh, again, like we talked about last episode with his goodbye to Marie that he didn't know was a goodbye. This is the same thing. Like it's, it doesn't feel like a forced ending for a character. In fact, his last line is cut off by the gunshot in, in a pretty realistic way. If you think about someone being murdered, I guess like they're not going to wait around for you to deliver your last line. It's just like, do what you're going to do. And then he doesn't even get to finish his sentence there. So, you know, it doesn't feel forced to the audience either. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, as far as raw emotional power, it's one of the strongest moments in the series because Hank is such a beloved character. He's the, he's the good guy. He's the, he's the dark knight, et cetera, chasing the darker villain. I mean, it's, it's so rough watching him die and then understanding what Marie's going to have to go through. Yeah. My, uh, I, I even had an honor, a second honorable mention here, and this is just, um, we don't have audio for this, but this is just when Skylar is pleading for Walt to leave Holly. Like this is, this hit me differently now that I have children, just understanding what it fe- what it what it must feel like to see one of your children, especially one who's completely vulnerable because she's a baby. But just to, to watch like the anguish on Skylar's face, I, like I, I'm, I'm not surprised she won an Emmy for this because this is just like that is complete dedication to a moment to the craft that doesn't feel forced, doesn't feel acted at all. It just feels totally real. And when she's running down the street, like chasing after the car and like screaming, it's like, it's like, it's incredibly moving. Yeah. I, uh, I totally forgot actually until this moment that there was that scene where she's running down the street and you're right. When I was watching that, I was like, Oh my goodness, this, this is definitely hitting me differently than it did when I watched this for the first time and I had no children. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, I think that takes us to our our best writing. Except you had a uh, you had one other thing about the um, a runner up for your best moment with Walt leaving Holly. Oh yeah, actually, on the on the same note about like now that I'm a parent. I mean, uh, I don't remember being particularly jarred by Holly at the fire station when I watched this the first time. It's like, oh, baby, at the fire station, the firemen will come and take care of her and get her back to her mom. Uh, watching it just a few nights ago, watching. Um, I guess you don't actually see Walt physically place Holly there, but you know he leaves her there. And you just see this tiny little baby looking sad and scared all alone in her fire truck where her father has just abandoned her. And I was like, this is actually also up there with one of the most heinous things that Walt has done. Like, you know, he's done all this stuff to protect his family, but now he's going to leave his own child abandoned and alone and afraid without her mom anywhere. I mean, this like this is horrible, and it was pretty gut-wrenching and just... You have to remind myself, like, okay, the baby's mom is standing just off camera, out of the shot, like none of this is real, et cetera. But it was it was really gut wrenching to see. Yeah, and and for those of you who are not parents out there, I mean, you know, you think about raising children, and I think the 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 general rule of thumb is that in the first two to three years of their life, you don't need to really, you know, teach like you know how to write or how to speak. Like they'll learn all that stuff, but the most important thing that you give to a child at that point is, is love and attention. And, you know, Holly is definitely in that range and Walt is giving her the exact opposite there. He's abandoning her. He's, I mean, maybe ultimately it's a loving gesture because he's certainly not a capable parent at this point, but even still it's, it's really hard to watch. All right. Well, that brings us to best writing and we both have the, the same selection here, which is the phone call that Walt gives 
uh, to Skyler when the police are recording. And we're going to hear a little bit of that, that phone call here, and then we'll talk about why it's so important. Where's Holly? Walt! What the hell is wrong with you? Why can't you do one thing, I say? What? This is your fault. This is what comes of your disrespect. I told you, Skylar. I warned you for a solid year. You cross me, there will be consequences. What part of that didn't you understand? So, Zach, I'm curious what, what you think about this writing, and then, then I'll give mine as well. So, um, I, I think, I mean, first of all, exceptional acting. I know the acting is not about the writing, but just the delivery of this scene between Andy Gunn and Brian Cranston, just fantastic. Um, I also think that I like this, this writing, and I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a spoiler here, but what, we're not, what we don't realize initially, I think, as the, as the audience watching this, what I had even forgotten until I watched Grand Estate again is that this is theatrical even on Walter White's part, and right? So not Brian Cranston, but like Walter White is hamming it up here because he is trying to cast uh, Skyler in a favorable light for law enforcement so that she can, you know, more easily make the case that she's been a battered spouse, victim of an abusive marriage, forced to do things that she doesn't want to, et cetera. And that's why Walt is saying all these things about, you know, I warned you, uh, this is what comes of your disrespect, why can't you do one thing I say, et cetera. Uh, and so I think this is a really cool kind of slate of hand, slight of hand by the writer's room to um, to to write in these these lines between the characters uh, and by Walt specifically that we think and we take we think he's serious about it and we take it face value but really he's he's playing even us right because we kind of we kind of tend to see like wow yeah he really is horrible to Skyler we forget all the times that she did actually go along with it and she could have gone to the authorities and she didn't. Yeah, I, I like this because I think it works in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think first and foremost, and I, I actually think you can get a little bit of that in, you know, I don't necessarily think you need to watch Granite State to understand exactly what he's saying, but maybe exactly what he's saying. But I think you get little hints of it here because when you see him on his end of the call, he's clearly like broken up about what he's saying here. And so I think that there is part of him that that realizes that, not only is he he helping her out, but he's really like damning himself at this point. And and so um and so I think that it works in that way that he's sort of helping her, you know, when she has to go to the police and they have to, you know, sort of figure out how involved is she. But I think also it sort of works in a way like I think he's getting stuff off of his chest that he always wanted to say. Like it it it's both truthful and not truthful in the same in the same way in the same sort of breath yeah that's true as well i mean i think there's a there's a reason why he's able to deliver the lines so effectively right <laughs> because i think there is some truth baked in there i mean uh and you know i think i don't want to jump it too too far ahead of ourselves here as well but in felina the final episode of the show he makes a rather startling admission to skylar that that we'll have lots to talk about when that time comes. Yeah, and I think I think too you you can sort of see the the anguish on his face as he as he says this, but I think he also realizes that not only is Skyler hearing this right now, but eventually Walt Jr. is going to hear this. You know, Holly is going to learn about all of this. Like, I think he realizes that the admissions he's making, while most of them are are true, and he has a lot to atone for. You know, he's he's taking everything on himself to help 
the rest of his family, hopefully. But we'll see that, you know, like it especially pains Walt Jr. And we're going to see their interaction in the next episode, which is also another one that's hard to watch. And I just feel like he realizes that this is sort of like the the absolute worst case scenario for him. He doesn't have all of his money. The money he does have, he doesn't have a way to get to his family. His family hates him with everything that they are. And he's on the run. And so I think at this point, like this, this scene works so well, this writing works so well because it works in multiple ways. Zach, anything else on best writing before we move on? Nope. I think we covered it. All right. Any nits to pick in this episode? The best episode. Does it have any nits? So it has. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, not a lot for me, but I just think RJ Mitty as Walt Jr. <laughs> like there are two scenes they're kind of, they're, they merge together, but the two scenes that really bother me, one, when he's driving home with Skylar, and two, when he's in the house with his dad and mom. We already talked about the, you know, him, like, not realizing who Skylar was talking about, but even in the car, there's a scene where he's just, he's, he's, he's processing everything very, um, I, you know, emotionally as is understandable, but then he says, like, well, if you knew, then you're as bad as he is, and... I don't know, just delivers the lines in a way that I find to be rather annoying. And I don't find it to be a particularly convincing way that a 17 year old would respond to the news that his dad is a drug kingpin, et cetera. And he inserts his lines at just kind of awkward moments, I think. So the dialogue doesn't really flow. Um, and yeah, I just, I just find it rather annoying to be honest. Just playing devil's advocate. Would any actor in his situation have done better? I mean, certainly maybe acting wise, maybe a little bit better, but are they in a lose-lose situation here? I mean, like you're going up against characters who have real depth and who have, you know, like legitimate way, you know, like reasons for delivering their lines the way that they they do. You know, does is is the character of Walt Jr. just so extraneous at this point that it's just a losing proposition? Yeah, yeah. it's a losing for whoever were to have played him. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, again, I'm not criticizing RJ Mitty per se. I'm just saying he's not. Uh, sometimes I am. Yeah, sometimes I, I mean, I guess maybe I sometimes am as well. But what I'm really saying in this instance, at least, is that he's not up to the task of, like, performing in these scenes. And I'm not right. saying that yeah, yeah. I would do better. I would do worse, for sure. But um, I think it is, you're right. It's it's a hard thing to go up against uh, Dean Norris, Betsy Brandt, Bob Odenkirk as Saul Goodman, Anna Gunn, Brian Cranston. I mean, really, any of the mainstays on this show are just powerhouses and then there's rj Mitty, right which is not to say anything about him it's just to say everything about all the other powerhouses so maybe you're right i mean maybe i'm just being too harsh uh and i don't know i'm not i'm not up enough on the sort of landscape of uh you know circa 2012 you know age 18 to 22 year old actors who could have done a better job but i mean they couldn't find anybody i mean maybe maybe it was just like they did the pilot and then they were kind of locked in right you can't change the sun after the pilot season or pilot episode. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of difficult. Yeah. Let's just say he hasn't had, he hasn't had many big roles since then in He's been his in some defense, things. in his defense. I will say there is a scene in granite state in which I think he actually does pretty well. Well enough to get your MVP vote. We'll have to find out next time. Don't spoil <laughs> what a it, teaser. <laughs> Don't spoil it. I have one. I have one nit to pick. I, I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching this episode, but I started thinking about 
the money, the money situation here. So Walt has seven barrels buried in the desert. Now we find out that each barrel has about 11 to 12 million, I guess that which would, you know, seven times 12 would get you 11 and a half would get you to $80 million. I love your half-assed internet research here, Josh. This is great. So, so Walt is left with one barrel. He drives away in his car, which is damaged. The gas tank has been pierced. So all the gas leaks out. He then has to push his barrel you know, uh, however long to uh, someone's house where he purchases their truck and then he's able to drive away. What I, what I was curious about here is how much does this barrel weigh? So I did a little research. According to the U.S. Mint, each bill, each U.S. you know denomination bill weighs one gram. And it looks like every time we see these stacks of bills that they are in stacks of hundreds, so $100 bills. So that would mean that there are 100,000 bills or or if you say 11 million dollars that's 110,000 bills which is 110,000 grams by weight which equals about 242 pounds add the weight of the barrel then you're up to about 250 pounds now Walt is in his early 50s which is not super old but he also has cancer he can't breathe super well and he seems to have no real trouble pushing this barrel X distance. So that's my biggest nit, nit to pick, that everybody just seems to move these barrels around like there's nothing in them, when in fact there's quite a bit of weight. It reminds me of the suitcases that they move around like there's nothing yes. in them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I love the research you did on that. That is a fantastic nit to pick, uh, and I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you brought that to my attention. I mean, <laughs> I thought like these things had to be heavy because I was like, you know, I've picked up boxes of paper, and paper can be heavy. It adds up pretty sure. quickly. But uh, I had certainly not done the math, you know, using referencing the U.S. Mint, et cetera. So <laughs> it's good. I mean, I, I don't know how far I could push. I mean, he is rolling the barrel, but it's through. It's not like on flat ground. No, I mean, it's in and a it's desert. not downhill either. Yeah. So I don't know how far I could roll a barrel of, you know, $11 million. Yeah, I don't know. 250 pounds. That's, that's pretty heavy. Well, then he, of heavy. course, he buys that guy's truck, right? <laughs> How does yeah. he get it into the truck? I mean, he's, right, but he's, yeah, he lifts that guy is pretty old. Pounds. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's mm. the deleted scene we didn't see is is them like attempting to lift it in. And he's like, "Do you have a forklift anywhere? Because we could use that to get this." Maybe in. what he does, Galaxy Brain here, he dumps all the money out, puts the empty oh, yeah. barrel <laughs> in the truck, puts all the money back in. That's the deleted scene we didn't see. The problem solving Walter White, <laughs> or you built a robot. You never know. Yep. Uh, metal (laughs) (laughs) that leaves us with our mvp tally i think it's it's relatively clear i want to hear what you say first although i think there could be maybe more than one possibility so who is your mvp vote for ozymandias yeah so it is it is actually um ozymandias aka heisenberg aka walter white i think it's really hard to go anywhere else i mean anna gunn makes a run for it for me uh there's a very plausible case for anna gunn but uh, I mean, Walt is just predominant in every meaningful scene in this episode, and I don't feel like I can go it go with it any other direction. Yeah, I'm between Walt and, and Skyler here. I, I think you have to give it to Walt here as well. So he is now up to 31 MVP votes. With only two episodes left, it's going to be tough for anybody to catch him at this point. Jesse is obviously the only one who could catch him at this point. He has 28 
it'll be interesting. I mean, we didn't really talk about Jesse in this episode because he he's certainly not at the forefront, but man, what a sad situation he's now stuck in. He is confined to this, this pit in the ground covered by a metal metal grate and his circumstances could not be sadder. And it's just even sadder to think about the fact that Walt has essentially put him here and that Todd is the one who at this point has saved his life. Not that Jesse wants it to be saved. I think he would be fine being killed, uh, you know, based on everything he's gone through, but man, tough situation for him. And the remarkable thing is it gets even worse for him. Yeah. Oh Um, gosh. I mean, it's just, it's so, so bad. I mean, maybe that's why I, maybe that's why we didn't talk about it. We've subconsciously pushed it to the back of our minds because we don't want to think about this. I mean, this is a, you know, his care, his character's fate is one that I think is so far in many respects worse than death. You know, he's like living a hellish existence where he has zero freedom. He's literally living in a pit uh, in the ground with a locked grate over it. And when he's not in the pit, he's tied up to a thing and made to cook meth all day. I mean, it's just, it's horrible. And, and that's all under threat of them killing his former girlfriend and her son. If he doesn't comply and it's terrible. You have to think, you know, in the last two episodes that you hope that that's more of like a purgatory for Jesse as opposed to a hell. And we'll find out sort of his fate, you know, as we wrap up this series. So, all right. Well, that leaves Walt with 31 MVP votes, Jesse with 28, and then Skylar a distant third, but a good showing with 15, then a smattering of people behind her. Hank in fourth place. So he will not be earning another one because he is now deceased, but that's a good showing. Fourth place for him. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Zach, anything else on Ozymandias? I mean, we could probably talk for hours on this, but I think we covered all the major points. Anything else we missed, though? No, it's just, it's so good, and you're right. We we left out a lot, but um, just for the sake of time, I think we have to. I'm looking forward to Granite State next week. Yeah. So if we missed anything, please reach out to us. Uh, you know, you have a little bit of time left. If you want something included in the episode, we'd love to read your feedback uh, on the show and, and respond to it if we can. Reach out to us at breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com and we'd love to hear your feedback. Zach, until next time, I'm Josh. And I'm Zach. Talk to you then.